Good evening, everyone. I just want to share with you that I've risen to a new level in my practice. <laughs> I was, I was uh, earlier today getting excited, realizing, oh, I, can, I get to listen to a Dharma talk tonight. <clears throat> it's kind of what happens, um, even when it's coming through one's own being. Um, one is also receiving what's coming through. So um, I offer this to you in service of your practice and uh, as, a, as a gift back to you for your, your offering to me and to us in your practice here. It's a, it's a, it's a beautiful gift of reciprocity. This, this Dharma Sangha world so, um, in listening to Michael last night, I, I found myself just filled with awe and gratitude for the Buddha's devotion, for his devotion, his perseverance, and his generosity. And, you know, the many, many beings and generations that followed uh, in that same path that, that listened and practiced and then had the generous inclination to share these teachings. And uh, uh, we, we wouldn't be sitting here if that weren't the case. I certainly wouldn't be. <clears throat> and the awe was really in that here these teachings were offered by a human being who lived in a different culture than the one I grew up, different gender, different race, uh, different time, time in, in our history. And as I said, devoted himself to a, a complete understanding of the mind and heart in such a pristine and consistent and perseverant way that, um, that when he realized um, when his mind, we could say, woke up, you know, woke up to, to peace, to freedom, to, to no longer clinging or driving at something or trying to get something, but just that woke up to complete peace. You know, some of the next thoughts in his mind were, um, this is something to be shared. If, if, if this can happen for me in this human human form in this human life, then it's also possible for other beings. And that's just such a profound expression of generosity. No, he didn't have to do that. And, you know, to hear these teachings, as Michael shared so beautifully and clearly last night, and to, to, to feel them, you know, in my being and how, uh, how true they are. You know, not true because it's intellectually true or something that I've studied, which isn't to in any way dismiss um, a Buddhist scholarly pursuit. That's not been my path. It's been through practice. But to really recognize the truth of those words in, in not just in practice, but in my life. And uh, you know, the profound gratitude that arises in that recognition and also just the profound gratitude in reflecting on um, this lineage of Asian teachers who 
who actually were very welcoming and generous to my Western teachers. You know, there's something I think culturally we can learn from that. You know, this embracing of another culture, this gift of the Dharma, this gift of Sangha across continents, across race, uh, across gender. Um, there is much to be learned, and I, I bow in gratitude to any of you in, the, in this uh, Sangha here whose uh, family you are, have direct lineage um, to Asian teachers. I thank your ancestors. We don't have to look very far to really see the, the impact of greed, hatred, and delusion in our world. We, don't, we can see its destructive impact on, um, on the, very, the very planet that we walk. You know, we, we understand um, the threat that we're in. Um, the destruction of our natural world. We, many of us, uh, have great concern about uh, the moral decorum in our country and how people relate to each other and care for each other. And in the state of our world, while, while greed, hatred, and delusion aren't new, um, here we are, maybe many of us, if not all of us, questioning you know, how how can we relate to the world with, with wisdom, with compassion, with wise action, with wise speech? These are big questions. And I think truly we can, we can look to these Buddhist teachings in our own practice for some of the answers, maybe all of them. Michael was saying last night that uh, it is through direct practice. It's not through necessarily reading or listening to talks or teachings. And not to say those aren't incredibly valuable. And for some people, you know, I've met so many people who have, you know, just through books actually, you know, come into practice after many years, just not having access to what we have here, a place to go and be on retreat. I mean, let's face it, this is, this is kind of a heaven realm, isn't it? I mean, even if your mind is in a hell realm, you just look around, it's like, whoa. You know, so much has really gone into um, the vibrancy of this, this spiritual environment right here, IMS. Um, um, Michael's more senior than me in terms of how long he's been coming, but I, I started coming here probably, maybe it was about six years old, um, this center, and just the, the many, many beings that, have served yogis over what it's uh, 43 years, 43 years, retreat after retreat. I mean, the staff, some of you might be out there. Thank you, thank you. You know, that you're, you're here serving all of the yogis that come to be on retreat. It's, it's such a beautiful expression of sangha. So it's, it's, it's a joy to express gratitude, and it's a joy to receive that generosity. So we might find that um, 
you know, we have those moments of experiencing gratitude and then we have plenty of other moments where that's not at all the case in the mind and heart. You know, this is a, it's not an easy practice. It, it seems like one. I mean, it's a simple structure, isn't it? But then really what happens is that, you know, we're faced with our own minds. <laughs> we're faced with our own minds. We're faced with our own bodies like over and over and over again. I mean, this, it's not by chance that we, we, um, we renounce our uh, normal distractions, if you speak, or, or normal engagements, you know, either through our devices or our phones or reading, you know, engaging with our family members or in our work life. It's, it's very purposeful that we are slowing down coming into a stillness or a simplicity, I should say, of being. You know, there's not, you know, there's not a lot to do, right? I mean, sit, walk, do your job, eat, sleep, go to the bathroom, take a shower. That's kind of it. Um, And in that, there's this incredible opportunity, this precious opportunity, I should say, to, to really investigate the heart and mind. Just what, what is actually going on in there? You know, and if we, if we want to understand the world, how can we possibly understand the world if we don't understand our own minds and hearts? It's just not possible. So, you know, sometimes you get that line like, oh, I'm just, here I am on a retreat, kind of just wasting my time, I'm not getting anywhere, I could be out there, you know, in the streets, or I could be out there, finish, you know, whatever is important to you. And, or sometimes people will say things like that, like, you know, um, <laughs> when I came on a three-month retreat once, a colleague of mine said, I'm really glad you're doing that for yourself. And I, I just thought, like, whoa, if I was just doing this for myself, I just probably wouldn't even come. You know, I, I don't think I'd last that long anyway. You know, it's not, it's not to be sort of righteously, oh, I'm doing this for everyone, but you just know, you know, all of you do when you're practicing, you, you know there's a... There's something powerful about, I guess I will say, purifying the mind and heart. It has an impact. It's not just an impact on our little onesie self. It has an impact in the world. There's not something you need to go parading around about. Actually, that's kind of counter to the point, isn't it? Because we begin to see, actually, in our own personal way, in our own personal practice, we begin to see how deeply in- interconnected we are with every other being, every other, every other living being. You, you can't help but see it. But eventually you just wake up out of the dream. It's like, oh, you know, if my mind right now is filled with self-hatred, it's got to be someone else in this group of 99 people that is struggling with that. And if you haven't considered that yet, please do. Please do. We recognize our humanity and we get to see it clearly. This is the exquisite gift here. We get to see what's actually happening. So, you know, the Buddha talked about greed, hatred, and delusion. He talked about um, impermanence as one of the 
three characteristics of life, the three marks of existence. You know, that everything is changing all the time. Now, we know this intellectually. We probably very much can be part of our everyday conversation. But what is it like, actually, to turn towards that changing nature of life in our own being, in our own experience? really challenging, can it? I mean, it kind of shakes up everything we think we know. Plus, we even think we know. How about that one? How about that one when you start to realize, you know, you just take, just sometimes it just takes a half a sitting to realize your mind is nuts, isn't it? I mean, it's not personal. It, it just it just goes from one thing to another. It goes, it goes, it latches on to what it likes, it resists what it doesn't like. It's like an ordinary mind. It it's what it does. It's just nothing to condemn. But the, but the problem is, and this is where the Buddhist teachings come in, is what happens with that mind is that there's a tendency to go towards what's pleasant, to actually believe that that's where true happiness lies. Now, intellectually, you're going to say, no, I know, it. I know that's not true. I know that's not true. But in fact, when we actually watch our behavior, what happens? It's like, you know, or think about your efforts to have a perfect sitting. Anybody, anybody engaged in that at all over the course of the last two days? Maybe? You know, it's, it seems good. It seems wholesome, doesn't it? It's like, you know, I want to have good posture, you know, I want, to be, I want to be with the breath, or I want to have a clear mind. So the strategies come up, you know. And it isn't to dismiss, like what I said the first night, about paying attention to posture, because we want to support our bodies, you know. And our inclination towards freedom, towards peace, it's kind of a healthy inclination. It's a healthy desire. But then we can sort of watch how we strategize, like we're going to get it, right? If we just do this, we're going to get it. I spent, I was telling one of my groups today, I spent a whole retreat, a whole retreat, seven days, trying to get one experience back that I had the retreat before. And what was it? It was an experience. It was, I don't even know how long it lasted. It could have been, it could have been a minute. I don't know, it might have been two, maybe. Probably not five. It was a minute or two. But it was an experience of the, the most peaceful feeling, just complete, I just, I want to say bliss. It was just so profoundly peaceful. And that was lovely. And it was a fruit of some practice. I mean, it was a, it was, it was a fruit of practicing. It's true. But then the mind wants to make it happen, you know, and, and the belief in it is that that's it. You know, that's liberation. That's what I'm after. Well, actually, no. It's, it's momentary freedom. It's lovely, and it comes and goes, just like awareness, just like mindfulness comes and goes. Do you notice that? Sometimes you'll have a sitting or a part of a sitting where just mind, it's easeful. Mind is really clear, sees things coming and going, connection with the breath, you know, even noticing that wanting, not wanting feels really good. Get it now. You get it. We're, you know, we're cooking, you know. And then, you know, that, that could even go on, on long retreats, that can go on for a while sometimes, that can go on for several days, like Michael was saying. And then, and then you come in the hall and you just have a, you have a sitting where you just feel miserable. 
You know, the body hurts, the mind is agitated. You just want to get the hell out of here. You know, you can't stand the person next to you. And then the thoughts start coming. What's wrong? What did I do wrong? What's wrong with my practice? You know, how can I get it back? And that's, we don't even realize that's deluded. You notice that? You don't even realize that thinking is deluded. Because, deluded why? Because it's this idea that one, we have control. You know, that two, it's all up to me. And three, that I can get it to feel good if I just work hard enough. So that's, that's, those three things are the opposite of what the Buddha said is the nature of one of the three characteristics of existence, which is things are constantly changing. Because of that, we suffer. You know, or we have difficulty. So what did he mean by that? It's, it's an insecure experience, isn't it? When everything's changing, you can't, you can't always get it to feel good. It's going to feel not good sometimes. Sometimes seriously not good. You know, we can't get hold of it. And then, you know, it starts to even, even this idea of self, this kind of permanent self that can be in charge and can take care and get it all in order, that starts to break up. You know, this, this idea of a self starts to become questionable. I'm not saying it isn't absolutely useful in our everyday life, so please don't misinterpret that. But we really start to see how vulnerable life is, how much it's moving and changing all the time. We get glimpses of it. And, you know, as I was listening to people today, I was really moved by the courage. Just the courage, just the courage that each of you have just to be here, just to come back in the hall again. Like, this is radical. This is a radical approach to waking up. It's not to suggest it's the only way you know, we know what trouble spiritual traditions and religions get into when there's a proclamation of this is the only way. But when we're here, we can, we can make use of these teachings by just, just actually cultivating some patience, some interest, some curiosity. This is what really drew me into this path, probably in part because of my own religious upbringing where I was told this is how you should think. And in fact, when I actually brought curiosity, it was just seven-year-old, you know, brought curiosity to one of my teachers, like, how do we know God is real? I wanted to know. Ooh. She did not like that question. She really didn't like it. And, um, and her tone and her voice towards me was... Um, profoundly shaming. And I just remember the only thing at seven years old was like I did something wrong. I did something wrong. Oh, I can really feel it in my heart right now. You know, just that, you know how that, that innocence, like I did something wrong and I have to be careful. And that was probably the beginning of my shutting down to understanding spirituality, at least from an elder, for a while. And then as I moved into my adolescence, it shifted. So these, these questions like, what is true? 
And how do we know what is true? We, you know, this beautiful teaching, you know, the Buddha said in his, you know, in his last hours, be a lamp unto yourself, see for yourself. Be diligent. Hmm. I'll find this quote. He said, um, the farmer, um, I'm just to note, I am taking um, some liberty here in changing genders, and I'm just going to assume you, you know why. Because there's not just one gender in the world. The farmer changes water to her land. Excuse me, the farmer chan- channels water to her land. The fletcher whittles his arrows. The carpenter turns their wood. So the wise direct their mind. I just find that such a beautiful quote, teaching from the Buddha, because it has that lovely work ethic in it. It's, it's like, it's simple, but it's, it's very directive. It's, it's like we need to, we need to um, apply what we're hearing to have any benefit from it. Otherwise, it's like trying to row a boat when it's still tied to the dock. You know, and the beauty of being together in Sangha, particularly in our small group meetings, you know, as we get to hear how other people are, are learning or are affected or sometimes, you know, something in the heart will emerge. Sometimes someone will share, you know, something that's heartbreaking. And we can feel that sense of just natural compassion, you know, for another, you know, for another. This is part of our human experience. Sometimes people mistake Buddhist teachings for, you know, you're supposed to be non-attached. You know, attachment is bad. I think it's a misunderstanding of what the Buddha taught. He spent many hours talking about Sangha. He said to his Ananda, we probably all know that quote very well, you know. No, it's not. Sangha is not half the holy life, Ananda, when Ananda asked, isn't it? He said, no, it's the whole of the holy life. We need each other. We rely on each other. This would be a misunderstanding of the Buddha's teachings that relationships don't matter. And we'll talk about that more near the end of the retreat. They matter hugely. And how we relate to ourselves. you got a big relationship going these five days, right there with yourself. What's happening? What's the tone in the mind? How is it? Is it kind? Is it compassionate? Is it judging? Is it harsh? And guess what? If it's judging and harsh, guess what? You can notice it. You actually don't have to take it that personal. It's like, oh, there's judgment again. There it is. Hmm. What's the impact of judgment? Can I be curious about that? Oh, it's like this contraction in the body, like, or, or shame arises, or striving arises. Oh, hmm. Huh. Maybe judgment doesn't have to be latched onto. Maybe we can just notice it. I remember Joseph Goldstein saying once, he just counts judgments. Judgment 596. (laughs) Judgment 597. You know, we judge ourselves, we judge each other. It's just judgment. The problem is, is when we believe it, isn't it? And please, um, that doesn't mean that wise discernment isn't in order, you know, in our lives. 
that's a different kind of judgment that has wisdom and compassion imbued in it. Hmm. I have this quote here from James Baldwin. Mm, for those of you who don't know, he's um, he was a black gay male who grew up poor, became a writer and a, really a sage of our times. Um, and he said, People who shut their eyes to reality simply invite their own destruction. And anyone who insists on remaining in a state of ignorance long after that innocence is dead turns himself into a monster. It's powerful. It's powerful. I take that quote as a call to awakening, as a deep understanding to our interconnectedness as human beings. You know, so when doubt arises when you're practicing, because, you know, it takes effort, we get tired, it gets boring, you know, we can hold that larger picture, like, you know, this, this practice is in service of liberation, of this mind and heart, and perhaps every other mind and heart, however that mystery unfolds. And it does unfold. And sometimes the most amazing and unexpected ways. Simple and beautiful ways. Like um, my father uh, grew up Irish Catholic, hard worker, probably strongly conditioned in in being a man and a provider. um, He had a great sense of humor. Um, in his 90s, maybe maybe this could have been, I don't know, a year before he passed, but he was pretty, he was um, struggling a lot physically. Something was wrong with the TV. Oh, I don't know. Um, I think I tried to play a movie, and then, you know how like sometimes you do that and you can't get it back to the regular TV? Something like that happened. And he was in bed, and he's, you know, saying, you know, if you blah, 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 about that TV, and, you know, and he was, he was PO'd, you know, and he was giving me this lecture, and, um, and I said, Dad, you know, and, and I was kind of a little afraid of his anger growing up, you know, I said, Dad, I'm, I was getting on a plane the next day, I said, what would happen if something happened to me on that plane tomorrow, how would you feel? And of course my mother's like, don't fight, don't fight. You know, it's like, no, it's really okay. And he kind of looked at me, like his eyes just opened up like that. He really didn't know what to say. And I felt the most profound love in my heart when I said that. This profound love for my father. I didn't want him to suffer. There were plenty of times in my life when I couldn't say to him what I really felt. But there was that opportunity, that just natural expression of the heart. And it came from my practice. 
I know that unequivocally, friends. I know that. You know, the next morning he was kind of his own way, like apologetic. You know, I knew it touched him, you know, in a, in a good way, in a healing way. So we don't know. We can have these relationships for years that we think we know how they are and what our role is in them and what's happening. And we don't really know. We stay open. We stay open. We, we, we stay open with ourselves, you know, with our own practice. We see, you know, we, we have the courage to, to turn towards what's difficult in our own minds and hearts. And it is difficult to practice. Just, just, just sticking with the sitting and walking. Don't you sometimes feel like you're just screaming in your head? Like, get me out of here. You know? And so when we can turn to that and just feel like, ouch, or not liking, or frustration, we're just turning towards life as it is. It's not really personal. This is what the Buddha meant. One of the things the Buddha meant by not self. It's not personal. It's life moving through us. And we have all these opportunities on retreat to, to notice the, the clinging, to notice the grasping. You know, I was telling a group um, today that, you know, one retreat, I chased the sun. I chased the sun. I was totally into, like, it was, you know, the fall. I was really into, like, I wanted to sit in the sun. I wanted to be in the woods. I mean, it sounds nice. It was nice sometimes. But what I found was there was an incredible attachment to that where I needed to be or wanted to be. And it started to become dukkha. It started to become like suffering. And why? Why was, you know, why was my mind suffering? It's because there was this idea in my mind that it needed to be that way. There was an attachment. That's where attachment is troublesome. You know, that, you know, we have this idea of how it should be or what's going to make us happy. And it's just, it's just a thought in our mind. And a lot of times we just follow that. We just follow that thought. I mean, this morning, I don't, you know, some of you mentioned dreams on retreat. It's always interesting because sometimes, you know, you can just have very vivid dreams on retreat. And I woke up with a vivid one this morning. And I don't always remember my dreams, but it was, um, I'm not going to go into the specifics, but it was unpleasant. And it was, it was unpleasant about um, a young friend of mine. And what happened was I watched my mind go like, uh, you know, I don't really want to get out of bed or... Uh, this is going to be, I don't know what, fill in the blank. I'm going to have to push myself today or something. Like, all of a sudden, my mind just started to make stories because of that unpleasant experience with the dream. So where practice comes in, it's like, oh, mind is making up a story here. You're telling yourself how the rest of the day is going to be. You know, sometimes you just wake up in a bad mood and then it just keeps going. Well, what if we just notice that there's a version happening? If we notice that aversion is happening, we don't have to get so identified with it. And we, when we're not identified with it, there's freedom. So it's irritability. So it's low energy. And the same with joy. You know, you can get, we can get really anxious about joyful experiences because we don't want them to go away. That kills it pretty quickly, doesn't it? <laughs> You know, it's like, hmm, let me grab onto this. Well, we can't. So William Blake said, kiss it as it flies. You know. But again, sometimes that shadow side in Buddhist practices, people feel like they can't experience joy, they shouldn't experience joy. That's nuts. You know, if you're feeling that sense of joy, 
that sense of connectedness. Sometimes it's just the sound of a bird, you know, or the feeling of warmth in your heart, you know, or enjoying your meal. Feel it. No, that's being alive. It's the gift of slowing down and paying attention. Sometimes you walk out and it's like, it's like a symphony, just the birds, isn't it? It can be. Or the snow. You know, it's also really interesting, I think another very interesting thing to pay attention to in practice is, is balance. Is, um, you know, just to notice our own tendencies of mind, our tendencies or, or habit or, or just ways we are. Notice it lightly and without judgment. And um, I'll just give you a, a few more examples of um, pra- practice experiences. Uh, but there was a time I was here on a long retreat and there was um, a really intense storm. It was like, a, it was all the right conditions for what I'll tell you what, what happened. So the conditions were, I can't remember now if it, if it snowed first and then it rained, but then it changed to ice. So what it created was huge, big chunks of ice on all the trees. And it was, what happened was, um, it just uprooted these hundred-year-old trees, like all around here. We lost power for a while. And, you know, there's a big sign on the bulletin board, like, don't go out, you know, which, of course, made me want to go out. But, um, you know, eventually I did take a walk and um, down the road and then in through the woods. And it was just like, it was just like, the, the earth had been ravaged. I mean, ravaged. There were just these big trees literally like uprooted from the ground. Like you could just see all their roots. And it wasn't just a couple. They were, it was everywhere. It was everywhere. And, you know, when you sit and practice for a while, you know, there's a sensitivity. I just, I felt like my heart was breaking. You know, it was just so sad and painful and symbolic as well, like nature as well as humanity and all of that. So I had my meeting with Joseph, my individual meeting, and I went in and I was looking forward to telling him about how painful this all was. And he said, well, you could just notice change. Yeah. I told someone that later. They said, oh, he's deluded. (laughs) I said, no, no, I didn't experience that teaching the least bit deluded. I experienced it a beautiful gift. You know, he he understood. He knew me, you know, and and it was was just a, it was a wonderful way to deepen in my practice. It doesn't take away from compassion for the world or the suffering, but it allowed, it allowed this mind to back up from that, you know, intensity of feeling without rejecting it and just experience, yeah, change, change. You know, I must have been the same retreat because I, I went in another time, I said, oh, Joseph, I just walked into the dining room and just 
everybody's so vulnerable. You know, we're just all walking around. We're just, we're so vulnerable, you know. And he's like, you could just note seeing. <laughs> I want to give Joseph the wrong rep here, but it actually was also really helpful. It was really helpful. It helped balance the mind and heart. It's not like he was trying to convince me that people aren't vulnerable. But it was helping my practice find that equanimous place. And maybe for someone else he might say, see if you can feel into the feeling a little more. I don't know, I might say that to somebody. If I felt like, you know, they were going back into analytic thinking, not that that's bad or wrong, but that, you know, it's, it takes practice sometimes to just be with feeling. It takes courage to be with unpleasant physical feeling, to be with unpleasant emotional states. You know, we want to analyze it sometimes because it's hard to just be with it. It's hard to just be with the presence of sadness, loss, grief fear. So what happens if we can just meet it with that courageous heart, mind? Just, just be with it. Watch, it. watch it do its thing. Watch it come and go like the sun, like the clouds, like the snow, like the morning. This is a profound practice. It, it strengthens our capacity to be with life as it is. And the more we practice in this way, the more we attune to with our curious minds and hearts, with just the direct experience of what's happening right now. What's, the bo- what's happening in the body? What's happening in the mind? Not so I can get a hold of it, but so I can know it. I can see it. This becomes, this practice becomes a way of life without even trying. Like that story about my father. I didn't think, hmm, what am I going to say to him? Actually, if I had, I may not have. If I had actually thought, let me, let me think about this. You know, I may not have. Because it was a quivering heart, you know, there's something when we break through conditioning, even if we intellectually know it's a good idea, it's scary. So this practice is, yeah, we're kind of slogging along here, or we're having a great time, or it's a mix, and sometimes we're like, ah, what's the point? You know, I don't get it. Well, you know, just keep practicing. Maybe you don't have to get it. Maybe you just say, hello, doubt. I see you doubt, you know, because after a while there, there isn't doubt about the practice. There, there's, actually, there's actually taking refuge, there's actually resting in that knowing, that knowing, that knowing of the heart, that knowing of the Buddha mind, this resting in the confidence and faith 
It's, it's a verified faith. It's through our practice. So we, we take refuge. When we did at the beginning of the retreat, take refuge in the Buddha. We're taking refuge in that capacity for awakening. It's not just an idea. It's actually possible. We take refuge in knowing that, living into that. We take refuge in the teachings, the, the teachings. And why do we take refuge? Because we check them out. We practice, we, we see, does this make sense? You know, don't take what we're saying, forget it. Just check it out for yourself. Discover for yourself. Then, you take, then we can take refuge. Oh, yes, I can rely on this. We take refuge in the Sangha. You know, we're not perfect. We're not perfect beings. But, you know, when you're on the path, what a gift it is. What a gift it is to have, you know, a Sangha of other teachers. Um, Asanga of other practitioners. It's an extraordinary gift because we can rely on someone wanting our liberation. So if we go to them for feedback, you know, that, that's what they're going to speak to. You know, we take refuge. And, and this refuge supports us in meeting life. You know, just meeting the, the vicissitudes, as they say, the, the 10,000 joys and sorrows that, that none of us are immune from. I mean, we have different conditions, for sure, based on lots of cultural realities that are uh, extremely painful, some of them, you know? If we think of the, you know, the institutional kinds of harm, like uh, harm based on one's gender or race or uh, physical ability, mental ability, you know, class, religion, age, you know, those, you know, we all, on some way or another, have been on the other end of someone's presumption based on how we look. It's painful. And it's extremely destructive. You know, so we can begin to see through that. And, and through, you know, in seeing through this conditioning, this cultural conditioning, this personal conditioning, you know, that, that courage starts to shift how we behave in the world. That, that understanding, that, that taking refuge just impacts who we are in the world. That's what makes me think of James Baldwin's quote, you know. It's the opposite of being a monster. It's responding. It's responding from a wise heart and mind. It just happens. It's a natural unfolding of this practice. You know, in, we're in here, we're like in a training ground. It's like doing the scales, you know. It's like if you're an athlete, you know, you, you do your exercises. If you're an artist, you, you work with your colors, you know. If you're a musician, you, you do the scales, you know. It's like, that's what the Buddha meant. It's like you put the time in, you, you know, you, it, you, you practice so you can live a life that is imbued with, with wisdom and loving kindness. Not perfectly. Not perfectly. But we get less and less interested in hanging out in what doesn't feed us. And, and more and more compassionate for the conditioned aspects of mind. And, you know, conditioning is intense. I mean, I was brought up in a certain religion where, you know, guilt was a, you know, it was a common product of that training. And I watch it in my own mind. You know, I've been practicing that tradition for many, many years. I, I see it. 
I see it arise. It's like, whoa. And I feel the pain of it. It's like, there it is. There's that conditioning. It's a little different than I got to get rid of it. It's me. It's bad. Oh, I've been practicing for so long. I should, that shouldn't arise anymore. Get over it, you know? I mean, really. It's, it's, we're human beings. We're, we're going to meet what's difficult. It's going to be there. And practice, Dharma practice, practice of love and wisdom helps us, supports us, strengthens us in meeting the truth of life. And sometimes we can just enjoy um, our deluded minds. You know, it's fun sometimes, isn't it? I have another story for you. kind of a favorite of mine. So <clears throat> I was on a retreat and, um, and years ago the bulletin board was, uh, don't get any ideas by this, okay? <laughs> but the bulletin board was a place to communicate, whew, um, to communicate, to leave notes. So yogis would, would commonly leave notes, like sometimes many of them. And it's, I think it's great that that's not the case anymore. It just, it just helps your mind relax more. But at any rate, I was looking at the bulletin board like many of us do for the 25th time in a day, just seeing if there was something different. And there was, actually. There was a note. And it, was a, it wasn't a closed note. It was an open note. And it said, Scorf, please come home. Please come home to me. And I just, I just, my heart broke. I just thought, oh my God, there's, you know, there's a couple here together. They've been broken up. They might have had a terrible breakup. And somebody just had this realization through her practice. It it was definitely a she in my mind. Through her practice that she missed her beloved. And it was like this public announcement. Just, it was so beautiful. You know, I just had never experienced anything that beautiful. And just scorf, please come home to me. And, you know, I felt it and was with it and touched and, you know, carried on with their practice. And the next day, you know, it was still on, the, the note was still on the bulletin board. And I looked a little more closely and it said, scarf, please come home to me. And I realized someone had lost their scarf. Our minds are amazing, aren't they? <laughs> I think that same retreat, must be some delusional retreat, that same retreat, I, I was going to get my boots, and I saw the boots, and they weren't my boots, and it was like somebody had taken my boots. And they must have had the same kind as me, but they took mine. And I, I stressed about it a lot, and, you know, how could they be so mindless that they took my boots instead of their boots, and... They were those Sorrells with the yellow laces. And, you know, that went off. Oops. So, get excited about these talks. Um, that went on for a while. And then um, I went, you know, I, I looked at the boots that weren't mine anymore. And I looked at them more carefully. And it's like, oh, they are, they are my boots. <laughs> It's a good teaching. You know, like, it's just a good teaching on just being careful to not believe all our thoughts. Maybe even most of them. 
you know. And what happens when we let go of our attachment to the mind's thinking? It's not like we stop thinking. It's not like thoughts aren't useful. It's not like we don't make plans. It's not like we don't create things. But when we take ourselves a little less seriously or we're not so our attached to our opinions, like you know, the Buddha said, you know, we will, we will cease to cherish our opinions. There's a lot of freedom. And there's humility. And there's the capacity to see others more clearly when we're not so caught in our opinions, beliefs. There's the capacity for something new, another way of being, another way of living, another way of connecting. So, all this to say... um, Don't be fooled by the doubting mind that says, hmm, I don't know what this is all about. Or it's, I'm just going to go back to my life after this. No. It's like every drop. You know, if you stood over an empty bucket and you just put a drop in, eventually, if you stayed with it, that bucket's going to get full. It's the law of nature unless it has a hole in it. But we don't have, we don't have a hole. We have uh, an amazing capacity to, to be free. Right here, right now. There isn't anything else to say. Thank you for listening. Let's take a moment, a few moments, to be quiet together. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.